0: Cardiovascular disease is one of the leading causes of death for officers around the world. We die from heart attacks more often and younger than the general population. So today, we go into the weeds on all the questions you have about your heart's health with cardiologist Dr. John Scheinberg. Stay with us. You are a warrior. 321, what kind of is it?
1: You are the very best your
0: nation has to offer. 911. Multiple shots. They're asking you to lead. We need a bear catch. It's up to us. For 133, I need somebody who's got a visual of where the shooter is. You must be sound in mind, body, and spirit. 42, where's the officer now? I have a rescue helicopter that wants to land and help. This is the podcast
1: that will make you the one. running The one that will bring everyone back. Trouble, we have shot fired, shot fired. Give me
0: back
1: up now because no one else
0: is coming. We're going to have an officer shot, an officer shot, 100 blocks of East Street. Suspect is down, suspect is down. This is The Squad Room. Hello, everybody. This is The Squadron, the podcast about navigating the challenging terrain of our demanding careers as law enforcement professionals. My name is Garrett Tesla. I'm an active duty sergeant for a sheriff's office in Southern California, and I'm here to help you learn tactics and strategies for taking care of yourself, your family, and your community. This episode you're about to listen to is a rebroadcast of a previous episode that I think needs to be heard by as many people as possible. I've selected 10 of my favorite older episodes that have some vital information for you. I often get messages from people asking for a particular guest, and I'd like to say that at least half the time, That person has already been on the show. So I think our show today will have some great information for you that will help you lead a happy, healthy, and successful life filled with purpose. Before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that you can get more information on this episode, including the show notes and links by going to thesquadroom.net. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and all the others, and follow me on Instagram and Twitter at The Squad If you want to find ways how you can help support the show and save yourself a few bucks in the process, I'll explain more of that at the end of the op- episode, or you can head over to thesquadroom.net forward slash support. I also want to thank our sponsors for this episode, ProForce. If you're in charge of maintaining or replacing your agency's firearms or have a hand in that decision-making process, I want you to pay close attention for just a minute. ProForce is the largest firearms distributor on the West Coast and the only taser distributor in the West. ProForce is known among Southern California and Arizona cops for their great deals on firearms, holsters, and accessories, but what a lot of people don't know is that they also do agency sales and they are responsible for firearms procurement for some of the largest departments in the United States. Their business is helping agencies replace their aging firearms with modern equipment at the best prices available, and they understand that the momentous challenge uh, that is ahead of many agencies and what that entails. From obtaining quotes to managing budgets and meeting deadlines, it's their goal to help you streamline that entire process to be as effective as you can be. They've tackled massive replacement programs and also have a buyback program for officers that helps them hold onto the firearm that means a lot to them. After eighteen years in business, Proforce knows how to help agencies all over the u s navigate all the challenges that come with transitioning to a new firearm and Believe me, there are many if your agencies are at the point where they need to be your firearms need to be replaced, and you have a say in that process, you should check out proforce. I'm confident they'll give you great customer service and a fantastic price on any of the major brands out there. They've helped agencies transition to everything from Smith & Wesson M&P to the Sig Sauer P320, the Glock 17, and every model in between. Also, don't forget about your long guns, because they carry Remington, Colt, and many others. Check them out at ProForceOnline.com, or call their sales department at 1-800-367-5855. Again, that's 1-800-367-5855, or you can email sales at ProForceOnline.com. They'll hook you up with a free quote, no pressure, no obligation, just make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the squad room. Now, ProForce also has two retail locations in Orange County and Prescott, Arizona, so if you're near either, make sure you stop in to see their selection. They've gotten rid of that two to three hour wait time for firearms purchases, and now they take appointments, and they've got everything you want to go with your brand new gun. Holsters, lights, sights, ammo, and much more. Check out their newest deals at ProForceOnline.com. And in fact, if you go into the store in Brea and tell the clerk you heard this ad, you'll get 20% off a Streamlight TLR1 pistol light. I use the TLR1 myself, and it's an awesome light, so get 20% off yours in store. Just tell the sales associate the secret password is The Squadroom. All right, so here we are with a rebroadcast of an older episode of The Squadroom with a guest who I think has phenomenal information that's going to help you lead a successful life. Dr. John Scheinberg, thank you for uh, joining us on The Squad Room. Thanks for being here all the way from Texas, right? That's correct. You're in, uh, I believe, one of my favorite cities. Well, I don't believe it. I know it's one of my favorite cities. And uh, it sounds like it's become a favorite city of half of America these days. But you're near Austin, right? I am in, I in actually In, in Austin. Austin, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, way back in my... Uh, Earlier life, I was uh, in the music industry, so I used to come down to South by Southwest every year and was one of those knuckleheads that infiltrated your city for a long, long you weekend. You
1: wouldn't, you wouldn't recognize it now. He w-
0: wouldn't recognize oh. me either. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> I, hear, uh, I hear it's uh, blown up as a city. So I want to jump right into you. Uh, who, uh, I've already explained everybody who you are. Okay. Uh, in some sense, I mean not not you as like capital s self but I mean you are a uh, f- you are a practicing cardiologist a board certified cardiologist, correct, and you have uh, that 's your day job, which is a, enough of a job for anybody, but you also have your night job for lack of a better term you 're with you 're a lieutenant I am. And, and i, I didn 't say this before we jumped on, but you don 't have to say the department if you don 't want cause I, no i 'm
1: happy to do it okay. I, uh, so i 'm a lieutenant at the Cedar Park Police Department, which is a little suburb just outside of Austin. Uh, I'm assigned to uh, the intel unit, which is our, um, I'm on the Lone Star Task Force, which is the U.S. Marshals Task Force here in Austin as a task force officer. So Cedar Park carries by commission. I work there uh, a little bit, but most of the police work I do now is uh, with the task force catching fugitives with the marshal service.
0: Catching bad guys.
1: Catching bad, catching <laughs> the worst of the worst.
0: So I have a lot of questions just about time management, and we'll get to sure. those because I can't wrap my head around how someone does both of those uh, and then still has time for all the things that you have to do to be good at either of those. So right. we'll jump into those. But, you know, I was in, in getting ready for this and uh, actually having my own doctor's appointment last week when he was getting on my case about getting in for my physical, got to thinking about this. And, and um, cardiovascular disease is such a is such a big problem for cops. I mean, these this data is a couple of years old, but the American Heart Association says that the average age of an officer – that has a heart attack is 49 That's versus a, a civilian who's who's 65. And the percentage of heart attacks for officers under the age of 45, that 45% of all heart attacks that occur in law enforcement are for people under the age of 45. Correct. And 7% only for civilians. As Wait. someone who's only got a few years left before they hit that 45 age, I'm I, that terrifies me. So why is cardiovascular <laughs> disease and heart attacks specifically, and maybe you can parse the difference between the two, why is that such a big problem for us?
1: That's a good question. And the answer, unfortunately, is we have no idea. Um, l- let me let me, um, l- let me me kind of talk about a few things that you mentioned here and then kind of head into it. So um, as a cardiologist uh, and as a police officer, I kind of find myself relatively uniquely positioned to try to take a stab at this. And this question has been asked for years, you know, why do cops have heart attacks at a rate which is higher than what we see in the civilian sector? And, um, you know, the the interesting thing about this is not only is it known that we have this, but it also has been relatively uh, forgotten and unaddressed. We spend so much time when we talk about officer safety and wellness on body armor policy, uh, reflective vest policy, uh, pursuit policy, all these safety things. We spend an inordinate amount of time on on the trauma packs and our quick clot, our tourniquets and whatnot – But the reality is another statistic that you had not hit on is that we're 25 times more likely to die of a heart attack than be uh, die at the hands of a suspect from from uh, hemorrhagic trauma. So it is a huge problem, and it's been given very low attention because it's just not sexy. It's not, you know, the officers don't go through a a class and get a kit and an acronym, and they don't train on it. So it's kind of been sort of a uh, you know not the the Attention towards this problem has not been what it should be. We don't really know why it's a problem. We actually know that there is a, um, there is a uh, genetic component to heart disease. So there's something about the genes that drive us towards this profession. Because we all know, people are you're, you're born a cop. I mean, you 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 have you're innately wired. I I was first a cop, and you know, in the 80s, before I went to medical school, that is how I am programmed. You know, you're a sheep, you're a sheep dog, or you're a wolf. And and those of us who are sheep dogs choose this profession. But there's a component to that that also causes an increased risk for heart disease. That's hard to define. So we have a genetically increased risk. Then. You add to it a profession that is a relatively sedentary profession, which most individuals don't realize that, you know, patrol officer spends most of his or her day in a vehicle. Um, It is a uh, diet of convenience because a lot of our patrol guys, unfortunately, are overly busy and they just eat whenever they have a few free minutes by scarfing down some fast food. It's a shift uh, work cycle. So people, we know people who do shift work have an increased risk of heart disease. It is a, um, the stress that we see in our business is very different than we see in regular uh, individuals who are not in the law enforcement or the other emergency service profession. Everybody that I talk to in their mid-40s and up are stre- is stressed out. It is a common problem, but our stress is different. We, you know, and those who do patrol, it is a 98% boredom and then followed by 2% terror. So we have these very interesting cortisol and adrenaline spikes and something about that combination of the genetics the sleeping the diet the sedentary lifestyle and the stress pattern puts together a um an increased risk those are things that are hard to tease apart though it's hard to control for those things and isolate them
0: well yeah and then i mean humans being humans there's such a wide variety of other issues you got to kind of parse out i guess too but so um like i said i recently went to the d- doctor and um uh I'm doing a, a lipid panel. I, I typically do. Um, one of the perks I have is I get to, I get free blood tests through my department. So I try to take advantage of that. what If someone is 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 really concerned about this or thinking about this, um, you know health insurance doesn't pay for every cool test out there for someone who is in dire need, you know right What are some of the things that uh, an officer can do within maybe the realm of reasonable health insurance or on his own to go ask for? Right, uh, to, and that, to that, detect this? That's
1: a great question because ultimately it does fall down to the individual officer to understand what they need to ask for. So I'll answer your question through a different way, sort of a side way, if I may. What we do now, what we understand, and, and we've uh, my group, we've just published a series of 700 officers who are asymptomatic, and, and we took these people through a very aggressive screening process, and this is what we've learned from it. There is, we we as physicians need to make a determination as to whether or not someone is beginning to form blockage to determine whether or not that person needs to be treated. So irrespective of what cholesterol numbers are, if I have someone who has really high cholesterol and they have no evidence of plaque formation, no evidence of early signs of blockage, that person does not need cholesterol medication outside of barring a really hard, a horribly malignant family history or whatnot. On the other side of the coin, if I have someone who has what used to be considered normal cholesterol, and they're beginning to form blockage, that person needs to be treated. So for a moment, let me just say, how do we answer that question? How do we determine whether or not someone is beginning to form blockage? There's three tests basically available to do that. One is an ultrasound of the artery of the neck uh, called the CIMT measurement. It's a carotid intima medial thickness test. It's a very quick ultrasound. It measures the thickness of the artery in the neck. That's one reason, that's one way we can determine if you're forming plaque. It's a good test. The problem with that test is it's very dependent on the tech doing it and on the machine. You're measuring pixels. So if you have someone who's got a large neck or you have an older machine or a tech who's not very skilled, the pictures are terrible and they're useless. The second thing we do is we can get what's called a coronary calcium score. This is a very quick scan of the chest. It's done on a CT scanner, it's low dose radiation, and it looks for the amount of calcification in the arterial wall. You're given a number depending on the aggregate amount of calcium present. Zero meaning there's no plaque. And then, of course, as you move down the line, one, ten, hundred, thousand, so on and so forth. Those of us who do aggressive preventive maintenance or aggressive preventative cardiology, a calcium score that has any detectable plaque, in other words, a calcium score of one or higher, is an indication that you're forming some plaque. And then the third thing, which I believe has the best predictive value, is a blood test called I'll give you the full words, lipoprotein-associated phospholipase A2. We call it PLA2, capital P, capital L, P is in Paul, L is in Lima, alpha, and then the number two, PLA2. It's a marker of inflammation. What that basically tells us, if plaque is beginning to fill the artery, the plaque irritates the artery to a certain extent, that irritation causes an inflammatory response, and it's that inflammation that leads to heart attack. So what we are... Sort of trying to get out there is every officer should go and ask for a calcium score and a PLA2. The calcium scores are about 50 to 100 bucks. The PLA2, the actual cost of that test, is about 15 bucks. It is, it is marked up by the labs and whatnot, and you can find it for 100, 199, 75, but these two tests can be gotten for under $100. If either of those tests are abnormal, that would indicate the need for an aggressive cardiac management uh, session.
0: And with, so a couple of things I want to clarify. When you say you yeah. did an asymptomatic study, asymptomatic for those of us who aren't also doctors and cops means... Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. It's, I, that's my job is to, in, is to interpret, is that these are people who have not shown any indication of any heart disease yet.
1: Right. So we right. took people who had no symptoms If anyone had, whether it was heart disease or not, so we took a group of people who had no history of heart disease and had no symptoms. And we said, look, we're going to check what the percentage of this group of people would be if we decided to put them through this very aggressive screening process. Because if they had shortness of breath or they had a previous diagnosis of heart disease, they were excluded.
0: And we've completed almost 700 patients in this, in this population so far. Wow. And so the, uh, I have a weird question about the PLA2 test, but one thing I did when I went down the rabbit hole on this several years ago was reading about the C-reactive protein test and how mm-hmm. that is also an inflammation marker test, right, but is very um, finicky and can be day-to-day totally different. Is this a test that's pretty standard? So, so C-reactive protein is a great test. It's checking
1: for the same thing, but the problem with C-reactive protein is it's nonspecific. So simply meaning if you bang your elbow... If you have arthritis, if your allergies are bothering you, any inflammatory process will raise C reactor protein. Or actually, the one we use now is called high sensitive C reactor protein. It's very nonspecific. Here, I tell you, here in Austin, it's a fit city, so everybody runs. We also have the worst allergies, so everybody I see has an elevation of, P- of C reactor protein. Uh, PLA-2 is specific for the coronary or the heart, or the coronary, what we call the coronary endothelial tissue, which is the blood vessels of the arteries. There's no place else that enzyme lives outside of the coronary arteries. So we see people who have very high uh, C-reactive proteins, but they have normal PLA-2s. And those people are not thought to have coronary disease because the PLA-2 is normal.
0: So the, the calcium score test, that was something in advance of us talking I, uh, did a little, of course, dude, did some research on you and saw that that was one of the things that you're advocating for. I asked my general practitioner about it and he was sort of kind of eh, like, sure you can. It's not like you say, it's not expensive. It's not bad. Um, he didn't, sh- he didn't think that it would show much though, or not, not because of my history. In fact, my history would probably indicate that it will show something, but that, um, he didn't find it to be valuable in the diagnosis or in, in treatment. So one thing I, I think I run into sometimes, and I've talked to others about this, is that when you have a, a doctor, specifically a general practitioner, who may not know a lot about our, our, our profession or mm-hmm. the specific risk factors we deal with, how do you, what's the best way to open that dialogue and try and maybe get them to give you some of that more advanced uh, stuff?
1: you know it, that's a that's a good question and that also relates to anything with a physician and not only if an, a, a police officer physician relationship but a patient physician relationship the patients have to be their own advocates and it's a as if you were going to a restaurant and you're not happy with the food you were served i mean you have to be able to say you know i know that in my profession I have these risks and i know there's been some stuff published about these risks these are the tests that i want and and if the if the provider is not willing or able to provide them, then I would recommend that individual looks for someone look you know, look for someone who's able to. Now the problem that we are we're seeing in this is especially in some of the advanced cholesterol testing, because the cholesterol testing in and of itself is is now extraordinarily complex. A lot of people don't understand it. And the primary doctors have to know everything about everything. And and they can't. You know, you see a primary and they had to look at your rash and your backache and your you know, prostate and your blood counts and everything. They can't, they can't know everything. Right. So the, I guess that what I'm trying to get is a, a really good primary care doctor knows what he or she knows and knows what they don't know. So, um, and I'm faced with that all the time. People ask me questions and my response is, I have no idea. It's not, not my field. But the officers who are hearing this, um, I would sort of implore them that if you are not getting the answers that you feel you should, Then, you know, at least for a consultative visit, see somebody else. There are a lot of people out there doing prevention, but not as many as we would like. And it's a fundamental problem in our system because I'm an invasive cardiologist. I make a lot of money when someone comes in and needs a hard cath or has a blockage or whatnot. We don't make that much money in the office seeing patients. So we are are unfortunately driven by we are a procedure-based specialty. And we are driven financially by doing more procedures. So even though the physicians may not be sort of choosing, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do these procedures unnecessarily, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying we have a culture in which the preventative stuff has been de-emphasized and the treatment of problems has been emphasized, whereas it's completely backwards. I mean, what, that waiting till someone has a blockage before intervening on it is like waiting if someone has metastatic cancer before giving cancer detection. We want to pick things up early. So the officers have to know, you know what, I need a calcium score. I need a PLA2 or a phospholipase A2 test. And then I need someone who knows what these things are and can interpret them. And sometimes that requires, you know, you may have the same thing, it requires shopping around. Same thing if you have a well problem with a, You know, with your water heater, you know, your regular plumber may not be able to fix it. You mean to find someone who knows how to fix it, a leak in the pool, same thing. So it's, it's, um, you have to have the, uh, yeah, I hate this term, but you have to empower your officers to say, this is what you need. And I would make sure you find someone who understands that.
0: That's good advice. And you brought it up, uh, cholesterol. Can you explain Mm -hmm. the good, the bad? Seems mostly ugly, but there's obviously some, there's some good kinds. Uh yeah, so, it's getting more complicated. What have we learned?
1: So I'll, I'll, let me answer that this way. Um, a regular cholesterol check, which looks at total cholesterol, bad cholesterol, which is LDL, low-density cholesterol, good cholesterol, which is HDL, and triglycerides, that's 1975 technology. There's four pieces of data on that test. I will tell you that that test is not a good test. It's outdated. A regular cholesterol check is, again, something that we should not be using. The cholesterol checks we do now are advanced, we call advanced cholesterol checks. They're cholesterol checks that look not only at the amount of cholesterol, but they look at the cholesterol quality. So for example, bad cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, it comes in seven different sizes. Not all LDL cholesterol is bad. Good cholesterol, which is HDL, comes in five different sizes. We know there's cholesterol particles that have these little sticky tails on them called LP little a. Um, So our understanding of cholesterol management has changed dramatically. So much so that, as uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a board-certified cardiologist. There are now board certifications for lipidology, for looking at cholesterol. That's how complex it's got. There's American Board of Clinical Lipidology, which is a board that provides board certification for people who have become experts in cholesterol management. So it's in and of itself its entire own specialty. So you can imagine the intricacies and the biochemistry associated with it. But mastering someone's cholesterol requires a three-pronged approach, usually. The right lifestyle changes, the right medications if they're needed, and then the right uh, over-the-counter supplements. And if you do, if if a physician does those type of approaches, we can improve all the numbers. And and I'll, I'll tell you one last thing. The advanced cholesterol check that I do, I mentioned earlier that a regular cholesterol check has four pieces of data. The cholesterol checks that we do in our office have 70 pieces of data. So it's a significantly increased amount of data that's generated, and our ability to detect and treat heart disease at the very early level is just staggering. Because of the data we're collecting, that's awesome. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to ask for that. So. So, so, there's there's several companies out there that offer it. They're called advanced lipid testing. And there's Boston Heart Lab is, is the one I happen to have prefer. Then there's there's Health Diagnostic Labs, or now it's called True Health. There's one called the Cleveland Heart Lab. Um, th- there's one called Athrotech. but overall these they're they're all Fords and Chevys. They're they're called advanced lipid panels.
0: And so you say there's four – your blood has to be outsourced to these people that can do this? This it is does. not something so, that a normal lab would do?
1: No. So the, the blood is drawn and it's shipped up. It's FedExed up to these other labs. And then it takes about two to three weeks to get the results back.
0: So then – okay. So cholesterol – and you mentioned triglycerides in that. But what is the – what's triglycerides and what's the relationship between triglycerides and cholesterol in this so, issue?
1: triglycerides are the free fatty acids in the blood. And basically triglycerides are a um, – They they come from dietary carbohydrate consumption. So we look not only at the individual cholesterol particles, but we look at the ratio. We look at the quality of the particles, the quantity of particles and how they relate to each other. And by looking at uh, adding by throwing triglycerides into the mix and some we call very low density lipoproteins, we can get information on not only if your body's producing cholesterol, but whether your diet's appropriate or not. And it gives me the ability to look at you and say, okay, Garrett, I would, you know, it looks like you're eating too many carbohydrates. We need to change your diet to this regard. And it gives me the ability to say, okay, you are producing too much cholesterol. You need this medication to to prevent that. You're eating poorly. We need to change your eating uh, patterns to look like this. You're creating some inflammation because of all these problems. We need to treat that with this. So it gives me more data that I'm able to look at and come up with a plan. And let me tell you, it's a rather
0: simple treatment plan to get to optimize the numbers. Um, so, triglycerides themselves don't necessarily cause a heart attack or cardiovascular disease? When triglycerides, when they're high in the face of high
1: LDL, makes the LDL worse. Okay. But you, we, we can see, tri- again, everybody has their own threshold. We see people who have normal cholesterol levels that have heart disease. And we have people who have very high LDL levels who don't have heart disease. So it all depends not only on the amount, but on the quality of the cholesterol. And triglycerides is just one of the components of that.
0: Okay. So um, I have a whole host of questions when I'm, so I'm enjoying this. Um, And so people often, you just mentioned carbs, but fat has typically been associated in the past with the causation for heart disease or cardiovascular disease. And, um, is that, is that still true today or is it the carbs that you're talking about here? It's phenomenal. These are great questions. So if you go
1: back into the 70s, the McGovern Commission looked at fat and the whole thought was dietary fat raises LDL, the bad cholesterol. LDL causes heart disease. Therefore, dietary fat causes heart disease. The contrapositive is correct. That's not correct. So what we know about dietary fat, when people eat dietary fat, bad cholesterol goes up. LDL levels go up. But I mentioned earlier that LDL comes in several different sizes. So when someone eats dietary fat, the LDL that are created are large, buoyant, fluffy LDL. Those LDL particles do not cause heart disease. They actually pass right through the blood cell and they are not absorbed into the blood, uh, excuse me, they're not absorbed through the blood vessel lining and they don't cause blockage. So dietary fat does not cause heart disease. What causes heart disease are LDL particles that are small and dense, and those come from dietary carbohydrate consumption, sugar, uh, um, simple carbohydrates. So the diet that we recommend is very different than the diet that was recommended 30 years ago when these numbers came out. So in the early 1983, the federal government came out with a disastrous food pyramid, which we're all familiar with. It's the food pyramid that had six or seven servings of carbohydrate-laden food on the bottom and then very little oil and fat. And that food pyramid has created the obesity pandemic that we see today. It's created an increased risk of diabetes and heart disease has not gone down. So we've scrapped that. So the diet we recommend now is more of what we call a Mediterranean diet or a paleo diet, which happens to be the one that I'm very, um, which I favor. It's a diet of fresh fruits and vegetables and meat what we want to eliminate from the diet is not fat it's processed food we want to eliminate sugar we want to eliminate um food that are is poorly positioned on the glycemic index so um you know uh, potatoes rice pasta and if we eliminate those, we actually see a significant reduction in improvement in cholesterol. And we've known this for years, but the, it's taken a long time. The FDA has finally come back and pulled off their cholesterol recommendations in terms of dietary cholesterol consumption. So there is some question as whether or not saturated fat can contribute to, to cancers and whatnot, saturated fat being the kind of fat that's found in meat products. But I believe that if those fats are balanced with um, monounsaturated fats and high levels of uh, the components of fish oil, they don't cause problems. So, the, so th- this is the long-winded answer to your question, that dietary fat, although it had been implicated in the past for heart disease, doesn't cause heart disease. It's the carbs and the sugar that does. It's the Cokes and the Gatorade and you know ice cream and candy. That's what causes it.
0: Hey guys and girls, I'm going to interrupt this episode to talk a little bit more about our sponsor, ProForce. A couple years ago, I was looking online for a new duty gun to replace my aging HK. My agency was taking a long time to close the deal, so I decided to purchase my own Glock Gen 4 G17. I shopped around and found out about ProForce and their insane prices on firearms and accessories, not just from Glock, but from all the major manufacturers, including Sig, Smith & Wesson, Ruger, HK, Colt, Remington, Springfield, and many others. Now, if you're a cop anywhere in Los Angeles or Orange County or even Northern San Diego, you already know about ProForce and their amazing deals that they have at their store in Brea. They are only open to first responders, fire, law enforcement, medics, etc., and they are here to serve us. When they reached out to me to talk about working together, I wanted to learn more about them. So I spent a lot of time on the phone with them because though they're known for their great customer service, I just wanted to make sure they were right fit for this uh, for the show. Well, ProForce has two retail locations, Orange County, California, and Prescott, Arizona. So if you're near either, make sure you stop in and see their selection. They've gotten rid of those two- to three-hour wait times that they kind of became famous for, and they've instituted an appointment system that makes your purchase so much faster. And they've got everything you want to go with your brand-new gun, holsters, lights, sights, ammo, and more. Check out their newest deals at ProForceOnline.com. And in fact, if you go into the store in Brea, in Orange County and tell the clerk you heard this ad you'll get 20% off a Streamlight TLR1 pistol light I use the TLR1 myself and it's an awesome light so get 20% off yours in store just tell the sales associate the secret password the squadron alright back to the episode So you just touched on on two questions. I want to clarify. One is on the unsaturated fat. So um, maybe I can t- tell this best in a story, and I've told the story before on this podcast, but not to you, of course. That I tried Paleo once for six weeks. And I went super strict. Decided to go super strict. I took a blood test the day before I started, and then I took mm-hmm. a blood test six weeks later. Okay. And uh, in the interim, I ate bacon and eggs almost every day. Okay. And uh, did all these, you know, did a did a Paleo diet, and thought there's no way on earth I'm lowering my cholesterol. Mm-hmm. Because I had high cholesterol, I had really high triglycerides. And I just thought it was kinda silly. I was like, I'm I'm all in, but uh there's no way I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna cause myself a, a hospital visit at the end of this. And sure enough, after six weeks, my cholesterol went down about ninety points mm-hmm. and my triglycerides went down about a hundred and fifty points. Yep. That blew me away. So saturated fat to you, of course in moderation, but things like red meat, bacon, egg, whole eggs, those aren't a concern to you as a cardiologist if you're taking out the bad stuff of of the sugars?
1: So, uh, okay, I will answer your question definitively. All right. Those are not a problem. So a heart-healthy breakfast is bacon and eggs, but not turkey bacon, not processed nitrite full bacon. It's eggs and it's natural bacon. It's the food our grandparents used to eat. It's not a problem. What becomes a problem, I'll give you the example. So we'll have people eating turkey bacon. The problem with turkey bacon is, as you know, by looking at a turkey, no part of a turkey actually looks like that. You peel one piece of turkey bacon off and you look at the piece below it and it looks identical because it's processed, it's injected into a mold, it's dyed. There's the problem. So the problem isn't the naturally occurring fats. The problem is the processing. So people say, oh, I can eat sausage. And my response is that's great. But, you know, you buy these Jimmy Jones, whatever they are, sausages, and they're full of processed nitrites and you can't understand half the ingredients. So the, the, the benefit, the, the, the reason your numbers improved is because you got leaner, your, your abdominal fat improved, and that is the problem. So the dietary fat consumption, even though you're consuming fat, does not lead to increased levels of high cholesterol. If you were to eat a diet which is low fat and high in carbohydrate, you'd gain weight. You'd have an increased abdominal circumference because you'd have visceral fat, and that's what causes the problems. So um, the paleo diet, like you said, and, and I would add one other thing to what your your comment was and your sort of interesting experiment you've done. The dietary um, uh, the, the dietary fat consumption leans people up, and it is the um, it is the reduction in carbohydrates, not the increase in fat. That causes the problem. And the only thing that you kind of, what I would advise after hearing you talk is we know the more restrictive a diet is, the less sustainable it is. This is why the Atkins diet ultimately fails. So if you'd come in to see me and I placed you on a paleo diet, I would have told you – don't be an extremist. The paleo world is, is like a religion. There's moderates and there's extremists. The extremists will tell you <laughs> no booze, no dairy, and that's probably the true way of doing it. But the more extreme, the less sustainable. So I tell people, I want you to be 70 75%. You like whatever your weakness is. You like pizza? You like cookies? That's fine. Have it on Saturday. Take a day a week off because food's a pleasure of life. You know, we love to eat. And if you are eliminating the things that we enjoy, the sustainability is zero. So we don't look for 100%. I don't look for these hardcore paleo because it doesn't work. We look for a improvement in where you were and um, a
0: diet that's a not a diet. It's a diet that is a lifestyle change. And so then back to dietary sugars. So I eat a bagel or something like that, and that obviously, those carbohydrates get converted to sugar, yes? Mm-hmm. And then how does that process from converting to sugar end up as cholesterol. So,
1: yeah, so your body has to take the, your body, they're all carbohydrates. So they're they're all, they're all, I mean, I answer it this way. They're all molecules of hydrogen and carbon and the way your body has to transport them and store them. You know, when you think about it, when you have abdominal or we call adiposity, you have a big belly that, you know, you don't have, you you, you eat, if you go to the, if you buy all kinds of M&Ms and candy and soda and you start eating this, you're not going to store, sugar cubes in your belly, you convert it into fat. And that has to do with how your body transfers and everything. Mm-hmm. So there, if you can, you can look at there, these are organic products and your body has to convert them to transport them and store them. So sugars convert into small dense LDL particles. And so my recommendation, we hit that is zero, no soda, no juice. People don't realize that a glass of orange juice, even if it's fresh squeezed orange juice has more sugar than a can of Coke. So we fruit is we can eat the fruit because when you consume a piece of fruit you're getting all the soluble and insoluble fiber in the fruit and that mitigates or reduces your ability to absorb the spiking of the glucose consumption and your insulin spike so we recommend no no sugar very low carbs as low as possible. Now we don't need to put people in the you remember the old Atkins diet we used to people Put people into ketosis. We don't need that. We don't. That, that, I don't believe that's healthy. Mm-hmm. But if you reduce the carbohydrate consumption, we see significant improvements, just like you described.
0: Okay, so thank you for explaining that. So, because my question is about the sugars relates to what my next question is, and you kind of mentioned it with the abdominal fat. Um, but given the shift work and and just the line of work that we're both in, too, is there a relationship between heart disease and heart attacks and uh, diabetes? Oh, without of, question. Okay, without can you explain, question. maybe explain some of that? So, um, matter of fact, I was just talking about this. There's a very
1: simple, it's it's sort of an oversimplification, but there's a very simple way of, of kind of understanding this. When someone has diabetes or pre, and, and, and I, I got to mention that, the term diabetes is sort of misused because people say, oh, I'm pre-diabetes or I have diabetes or I really don't have diabetes so I'm not taking insulin, I'm on medicine. So we, we tend to use the word, you know, hyperglycemia, too much sugar in the blood. We took a fasting sugar on someone. It should be in the 90s or lower. Um, there's several ways of measuring diabetes and coming up with an official endocrinological endocrinological diagnosis of diabetes. But the reality is when you have too much sugar in your system, the best way to think of it is these sugars act like little shards of glass, the sugar crystals actually damage the blood vessel walls. So if I were seeing a patient who is a diabetic, we consider that person to have what we call a coronary risk equivalent. We treat a diabetic as aggressively as someone who's come back from bypass surgery because diabetes, the sugar in the blood, damages blood vessel. So diabetes is a definitive risk for coronary disease. And like I said, we call it a coronary risk equivalent.
0: It seems like um, a lot of the discussion that is coming out now um I just attended Dr. Kevin Gilmartin's class. I don't know if you've ever seen him speak, but uh, he's a psych- psychologist, I believe. But um, he talks a lot about the physical issues. Mm-hmm. And um, Dr. Kirk Parsley is another pro-law enforcement medicine. Uh, he's a sleep specialist, but he also talks about diabetes in relationship to sleep. But it seems like mm-hmm. what a what a perfect storm of, of issues that, that we are faced with when right. we deal with it. Like you say, a diet of convenience and um, you know, you, if you don't attack your cardiovascular disease, you're also opening yourself up for diabetes. And I know that cops are pre-diabetic as a, in general, we are often pre-diabetic, I guess, or I learned this recently, they call type some type two diabetes is sometimes called the policeman's disease. Yeah,
1: it's, it's rampant. We just did a study on a uh, a local department with about a hundred officers in it. 66% of those officers had premature, or sorry, preclinical heart disease, so blockages before they became clinically manifest, but 37% had undiagnosed diabetes or prediabetes.
0: Why is it undiagnosed? Just because they didn't go get a blood test or we weren't looking at the right thing? uh, Because they hadn't
1: gotten, you know, what happens when you're a 30 to 45-year-old guy? You know, a lot of us feel fine. We don't go to the doctor. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an endemic problem. Now, sometimes you have to go for your, you know, you got to get this signed off and whatnot. But let's take out cops for a moment. Males our age and men between the ages of 25 and 40 typically don't go to the doctor that often. So these people feel well. They have no symptoms. And these things are not causing problems at the moment. They're causing they'll cause problems downstream. So these people had, had no idea or they had been told, oh, yeah, I was told my doctor a few months ago or a year ago. That I was heading in that direction. We look at this, and, and now I, this you know, in my practice, when I talk to my patients and my officers, I tell them I don't use the word pre-diabetes or like or pre-hypertension. It's like saying a, you know, either you have it or you don't have it. It may be diabetes that is very very mild and can be treated with just watching carbohydrates. But when we start saying pre. It's a very gray area, and depending on who you talk to, that pre-level stops at different areas. So I I tend to say, look, you have hyperglycemia, you have too
0: much sugar in your blood. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned uh, the diet that you would recommend for um, minimizing or mitigating this, Uh, and then you mentioned uh, the three things, diet, medication, and supplements. Well, medication is up to you, diet is up to us, supplements might also be up to us. What supplements do you recommend that we uh, work on?
1: Okay, so I will make sure I make this clear because I, tra- I travel all over the country and, and talk to different police departments as we start setting up, as they as try to set up wellness programs. And I always have to emphasize that I do not recommend sort of blind use of supplements. So going to GNC or whatever, vitamins or whatever, and getting a bag full of supplements, thinking it's going to have a positive impact has never been shown to do anything. However, if we tease out some information on these advanced cholesterol checks, We can use these supplements in a targeted fashion. So, for example, we measure uh, fish oil levels. We measure EPA and DHA levels. And there are studies that show us that if you have the adequate amount of EPA, which is one of the components of fish oil, that reduces heart disease. If there's inflammation, we know EPA reduces heart disease. We measure vitamin D levels because we see people who have adequate levels of vitamin D sleep better. Uh, They also have less inflammation we measure something called homocysteine, which is an amino acid, and if it builds up in our system, it tells us that we have a difficult time metabolizing folate or vitamin B9, and we supplement with that. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is I would guide the use of supplements pending the um, testing that's come out.
0: So that yeah, Okay, so you just said it, but this is not something where – I mean I try to take fish oil as best I can when I remember it because I mm-hmm. have low HDL, and it was recommended that that would help bring up my levels a little right. bit. Um, but not something that I would run out to. And actually, I do vitamin D as well. On the sleep end, I didn't realize like, it would have had a connection to, um, to anything heart related. But yeah, I, I found that vitamin D and magnesium, and then even throwing in GABA, I mm-hmm. I sleep a lot better. Because mm-hmm. uh, I have a, <laughs> you're not the sleep guy, but I have a whole host of sleep sleep shift work sleep disorder mm-hmm. sleep apnea, other yep. issues. So, um, really, you would recommend the blood tests first, and then. Kind of filling in the gaps with the supplements from there.
1: So there's two problems with supplements. First off, that's a completely un, it's a fifteen billion dollar year industry that's got no regulatory oversight. So um, the claims that are made are a lot of times not substantiated, and you can get products that have no active ingredient in it because they're not regulated. So there's plenty of oper- there's plenty of things written up. For example, Consumer Reports will pull vitamin C off the shelf and there's no detectable vitamin C in the capsules. And the New York Attorney General is suing GNC because they did a whole bunch of testing and a lot of their products have no active ingredients in them. So you have to make sure you have a product that someone knows it does something. It's not just anecdotal and you have to get a product that's a good quality product. Otherwise, you're getting, you may end up getting, spending your money and getting nothing.
0: So do you have a brand that you go to for some of these yourself? I, I, or? I do.
1: And I will, again, this is, you know, fully full disclosure, I have no affiliation with these companies in any way. There's three brands that we use. One is called Metagenics, one is called Orthomolecular, and one is called Zymogen. And I actually, let me let me put this out there for you. We have, a, a, if I may, a, sure. we, have a non, we have a nonprofit um, website that helps facilitate some of the cardiac screening. It's the Public Safety Cardiac Foundation, which is publicsafetyheart.org. The Public Safety Cardiac Foundation actually has an agreement with Metagenics, and on there under the Donate page, there's actually a link that you can click on and go right to the Metagenics website and order over-the-counter supplements. They're not marked up, and the profit that's generated from the sales of those go back to the nonprofit. So The nonprofit helps cops and firefighters and EMS workers get screened for cardiac disease. Uh, We send a few uh, cops to EMT school every year, so we're really involved in trying to keep cops healthy. But the Metagenics product is what I believe to be the best stuff on the market, and we, you know, you know these are these are products that are um, they're sold in doctors' offices. A lot of doctors will buy this stuff, mark it up, and then you know, sell it at the front desk for a profit. We're able to get it through our nonprofit at cost. There's a small margin that's built into each uh, purchase, and all that goes to the nonprofit.
0: PublicSafetyHeart.org, and I'll put show notes. I'll put the links in the show notes for this episode too, so people can go sure. to this episode on the squadron.net and just. Find all of this information you're giving out too, because that's one thing I always struggle with is is you buy um, like I, I'm I'm kind of in I'm into the crossword world right, and I've I drank that Kool Aid um, mm-hmm. and uh, even some of the higher end quote unquote high end supplements, the grass fed, free range, cage free supplement stuff has has been found to be relatively benign, right? Um, and you're paying through the nose or through the teeth for some of those things too, right? So. Right. Okay, so we touched on a little bit, but uh, sleep. Uh, we talked about it, you know, and kind of in relation to diabetes, and it seems to be well connected to diabetes, but how is it connected or is it connected at all to cardiovascular disease? So they're, it's,
1: they're all interconnected. So let me tell you, there's actually a
0: one published study on obese Taiwanese
1: police officers, uh, and uh, they looked at these people, and they what they found is a correlation between these officers who slept less than five hours a night and abdominal obesity. So, and and there's, we know that increased abdominal circumference or abdominal obesity or adiposity, we, you know, if you have a a big belly, that is in and of itself a risk for heart disease. Those people tend to have what we call the metabolic syndrome, which is low, good cholesterol, high triglycerides, diabetes, poor cholesterol quality, and those are the setups for heart disease. So the risk of, um, the risk of poor sleeping gives an increased risk of obesity, and the increased risk of obes- obesity causes hypertension, diabetes, coronary disease, sleep apnea, and sleep apnea comes back again. Now that causes more heart disease, so it's it's a vicious circle, but the sleeping is one of the components of that.
0: So here's a question for you then, and I, and this show has always been— uh, kind of myself and my experience and my journey to try and get fit. So I, I use myself as the guinea pig for the show a lot and talk about my challenges and my struggles. So this isn't a new thing to, to listeners. So I'm going to give you I'm going to give you my kind of current scenario or where mm-hmm. I was recently. Right. So because I have a question about metabolic syndrome because it seems to be a buzzword. And then um, you talk to some medical professionals who just say it's kind of a a hodgepodge of symptoms that doesn't really have any effect so okay so um uh, let's see cholesterol recently was i think a total of 230 triglycerides were 325 which i know is high uh, very high um like i said sleep apnea and shift work sleep disorder and i have i would say significant difficulty getting rid of that abdominal fat Mm -hmm. Uh, i'm pretty well structured everywhere else but i i can't I can't get it out. (laughs) And, and granted diet could be a lot cleaner than it is. But like you said, I try to work about a 75, 25, you know, clean diet. Mm -hmm. So that's just, I, I don't expect you to diagnose me, but the setup there is I've asked about metabolic syndrome in the past. And it seems like because I'm not, because I have decent sugar levels in my blood that they don't think that I have any issues with metabolic syndrome.
1: So, um, if I can interrupt you there. So, I think what's happened is you have not had enough testing done. So, if you had one of these advanced tests, they pull out a couple different things. So, we look at a bunch of different markers to help you sort of further determine that. So, one would be not only HDL, but HDL quality. The fact that your triglycerides are high is in and of itself an indicator that there's probably a, a, a dietary carbohydrate issue. We look at the small, dense cholesterol particles. And then when we look at glucose markers, we don't just look at the fasting glucose or hemoglobin A1C, which is a marker for how sugars have been over the last three months. We actually look at insulin resistance and insulin levels. So we can look at someone, and I'll, for example, let's say we have someone who, and this happens all the time, I have someone who comes in and looks at their, We'll look at their numbers and their hemoglobin A1C, or we call the glycosylate hemoglobin, is normal. And that will say, okay, you know, your sugars are fine. But you look at that person's insulin levels, and the insulin level, normal insulin level should be up to 15. This is 40. So what's happening in that person is their pancreas is cranking out more than twice the amount of insulin it should to meet that person's demands. And that's, only, that's temporizing. You, you can't do that forever. It's like the equivalent of, of driving up a hill, and you got their, your foot floored on the throttle, it's on the base, you know, it's, it's all the way down and you're able to maintain the speed, but the engine's working harder. Mm-hmm. So eventually that's that's not sustainable. So uh, again, I, I, without seeing a full metabolic path, or right. a full metabolic workup, it sounds like it's a carbohydrate issue. And the other thing is understand, that the listeners understand that there's no, I can't look at someone and say, you need to eat this amount of carbohydrates because everybody's different. I have patients who eat like garbage and their numbers are beautiful. And I have other people who eat clean and have one slice of bread. I have one lady today I saw, she eats some quinoa in the morning in her numbers. Are, she's pre-diabetic. So everybody is different. So to kind of group everyone together and say, you should eat 20 to 30 grams of carbohydrates, that worked for a lot of people, but some people can eat three or four times that much and still have the same numbers. So it's very individualized. But my question to you is, when you did your intense paleo for the month or two that you did it, Did you lose abdominal weight? Did that make a difference? Because that seems like the answer, you may need to be a little bit more hardcore just in the way your body is.
0: Yeah, no, I I certainly lost um, a lot of that weight. And um, just like you said, it was just a matter of sustainability. um, Right. At 100% 100 strict. But it's something I, yeah, I know I need to go back to myself. And uh, it's hard to, uh, you know, I've talked about this before too, but having a podcast about health, health and fitness for law enforcement officers, knowing that I still have a lot of work to do, um, which is actually just the whole point of the show, I guess, is that, you know, there's other people out there and there's other people. And the reason I have you on right now is because I want to learn this information and then share it with other people who need the same information and uh, just don't have a microphone at home. (laughs) So um, this is, this is all good to, to kind of ingest. So obviously diet, we've talked about diet, uh, Exercise is the other component of this, I would imagine, right? So Mm -hmm. what is your recommendation or your general inclination in terms of what kind of exercise? Mm -hmm. Um, How much per day or per week would you uh, advocate for? And is there a specific type of exercise, Uh, cardio versus weightlifting versus interval training versus spin class or soul yoga, whatever?
1: So um,
0: let me answer that
1: first by saying there's no data that's ever been generated that shows that exercise causes weight loss. So for people who are um, wanting to begin an exercise program to lose weight, it has to really be understood that uh, weight loss is a diet problem. Uh, a A matter of fact, it's been proven time and time again. If you take a group of people and you subject them to a change in exercise or calorie expenditure and you don't change their diet, they don't lose very much weight. In fact, a lot of those people, if you don't if you leave their diets alone, they actually gain weight because they're hungrier because they're exercising more. So people who say, Oh, when I exercise, I lose weight. There's a component to that, which people don't realize. And that is if you're going to go run five miles, you have a f- sort of a better fit mindset. You're less likely to go to McDonald's or, you know, and get burgers and fries. So exercise is a huge component of cardiac and health and wellness, but it's not an, it's not a uh, weight loss answer. And so, you, you get the, the nutritional component done, which we talked about, the paleo-type diet. In terms of exercise, the benefits that we see go from becoming sedentary to being active. So let me take, out, take off the cop hat for a second. I tell people, you need to be exercising three or four times a week, 45 minutes a time of brisk aerobic exercise. And then the question is, well, what do I get my heart rate to? And then my response to that is, don't wear a heart rate monitor. Exercise until you can barely carry on a conversation. If you're walking and you're chatting with the person next to you, it's not hard enough. If you're running so hard you can't talk, it's too hard. You should exercise until you're just barely able to conversate with the person next to you. That's great. And then maintain that. The other thing we do is intervals. And it doesn't matter if it's on the bike, on the road. Because you know here in Texas, our physical fitness standard for a lot of police departments has come down to a concept to a rolling machine. Um, so we do a lot of rolling down here now based on our Texas Department of Public Safety validation of that device as a sort of a job-related performance uh, measurement. But, so we do some – I recommend these things called thir- – they're intervals. They're 30-20-10s. If you're on the elliptical, on a treadmill, on a rolling machine, you do 30 seconds casual or easy, 20 seconds hard, and then 10 seconds burn it as hard as you can. That's a minute. And then you reset and you do another set of, another rep of that, 30, 20, 10. You do five of those, you take a two-minute break, five of those, two-minute break, and then you do that three to five times. It is a tremendous workout. And there's very good data to show that actually improves fitness, weight loss, everything, over all the other types of workouts. So we know interval workout is probably the best kind to do.
0: So I want to clarify this because... um at this exact moment, as you might see in the, I have a cast on my hand uh-huh. um, from a, a foot chase that ended with a pop, <laughs> um, and I'm on the elliptical because that's about all I got. It that's mm-hmm. about my. It's all cardio these days, so I'm going crazy with the cardio with sitting on the elliptical machine, and I'm doing um, kind of a longer version of this, I guess, over maybe a minute of uh, graduated from on a scale of one to ten, maybe five, six, seven, eight, five, six, seven, eight. And then eventually after the fourth one, getting five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten and mm-hmm. going all out and then resting. This is much shorter. It is. and But there's there's actually good medical
1: literature to support the 30-20-10 or sometimes people call it 10-20-30. And there's even apps you can get for your phone that when you're listening to your music will ping at 30 seconds, 20 seconds and 10 seconds and keep track of your reps. So 30 20 10 uh, 30 seconds easy, 20 seconds strenuous, 10 seconds burn, and then go back to the cycle again.
0: And do that five times, and then after those five times, you take a two-minute break, and right. then do that a total of three to five times. Three to five times. I'm on my way to the gym after this. So I'll give it a shot. It's like- a gr- <laughs> I'm you,
1: you need to let me know how it goes. It's a—it's a, uh, it deceptively simple, but it is—you'll be surprised. You'll get more out of a four, you know, four cycles of that than you would if you went out and you ran for 40 minutes.
0: Interesting. Okay, yeah. so I want to jump more into you uh with okay. some of these because uh cardiologist uh who you do like you said invasive therapy and uh police officer and, and I didn't know you were a police officer actually before. Yeah. Uh, you were a physician. Those both of those jobs are known for uh bad sleep or poor sleep or and fatigue, having to work through fatigue. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. I suspect you have a life of some sort outside of these two things. How do you do. manage all of those things? And, and I guess another question is why, but, but, but um, I'm just curious what your routine is like that with the knowledge you have, how do you implement that to maintain your own health, given what you know about both right. of these issues?
1: So I eat paleo, so I eat clean. Um, I hit the gym four or five times a week. And I'll do anything from I'll have a couple slow days or I'll do one or two days a week of just one hour on a uh, on a either on a treadmill or on a 48. So my knees are starting to go. But um, on elliptical and again, here in Texas, we validated this this torture device called the concept Two rower. Mm -hmm. And we we, so I'll I'll row a few days a week and I'll do the 30, 20, 10. So and I'll do CrossFit, too. So I'll mix up the workout. So I hit it every day Um, and and I can't and literally and. Not that I, I need the fitness as a when I when I work as a cop, but also quite frankly, if I'm sitting in front of a patient and I'm not fit, I lose all my credibility. So I have to sit in front of you. If I tell you, look, you can't eat that stuff. You've got to get to the gym. And then people say, I don't have time. I go. You want to hear about time? I have two jobs, three kids. You know, and, and it's there's always time. You just have to prioritize. Um, but, um, so my schedule is interesting. You know, I work mostly as a cop. Um, I have a few, uh, one full day a week. I take off and work for the police department and a few half days, and um, you know I don't uh, I don't do patrol anymore, but I do warrant service with the Marshal Service, and that usually occurs at varying times. And my my uh, coworkers they'll sit on houses and, and follow stuff, and um, before we take a hit, I'm able to go in. So you know I'm able to kind of pick and choose the things that I want, and I also spend a fair amount of time doing exactly what we're doing today is trying to get the word out and go into different departments. You know my my skill set is not best used doing traffic stops. Right. My skill set is keeping our officers healthy and alive. And that includes doing um, making sure they have the right combat casual care training, make sure they have the right iFacs and the right tourniquets, um, make sure that they have um, all the preventative stuff that they need to keep them healthy and make sure that they get in when there's a problem. So um, it's equivalent for, you know, when I was in the military, there's you know every, every military organization that has a group of people that are perceived to be at increased risk, they have, you know, battalion surgeons and flight surgeons and, and ship surgeons. You know, I'm under the impression that every large police department or every group of cops should have a physician associated. Um, the problem is... Cops don't like to talk to anybody who's not a cop. So in, in the state of Texas, there's about eight of us who are sworn officers and doctors nationwide. There's probably 50. So there's not a tremendous amount of us. But there's there, we're out there. There are a lot of doctors that are also willing to get involved that are not sworn. But they have a harder time breaking through to the barriers. And I, I stand up in front of a group of cops and I have a white coat on, so to speak. No, one, no buy-in. No one listens. But if I stand up there with my gun and a badge on my belt, all of a sudden, I have everybody's attention even sure. though the message doesn't change. So um but I'll take a tip, like a typical week will be, you know, a few days in the office, uh, a day on the with the marshal service and then uh, hitting warrants either in the morning or at night. And uh, but you know what I I love it and it's been part of my life for 25 years that um uh I hate I you know I can't give it up it's part of who I am.
0: Have you found any um routines or um even phone apps or anything like that that helps you regulate your day i've i've found that for me uh again something i talk about quite a bit cognitive fatigue is a big deal and if i can lessen the amount of decisions i have to make throughout the day it makes it easier uh to to get through the day do you have a routine in the morning or do you have things that you have set in place uh that help you get to to help you do that
1: Yeah, nothing sort of um, definitive, such as an app or a scheduling program. But, you know, my day is, especially once I get here to the office, it's so regimented in terms of, you know, every five minutes is sort of accounted for. But, you know, I'll, I'll cut out early some days to hit the gym and do what I need to do. I'll work in the, I'll get to the gym early some days. So I look at it and make it a priority. And the other thing I do is I plan my meals. I don't just show up somewhere with no food. I usually bring lunch. Um, if, you know, if not only to work, but if I'm going to go out and do police work, I'll make sure that we have, you know, I pack my food so I'm not scrambling to go to Wendy's at two o'clock in the afternoon cause I'm, I haven't eaten all day You know, I'll bring a bunch of snacks and I'll bring the right food so I don't put myself in that position. And, and that actually carries along that if I'm going out for dinner and this is not, this is just a personal thing. I'll know, I kind of know what I'm going to eat before I get there. So I don't look through the menu and go, Oh, and then the waiter comes over and you're kind of rushed. I know what I'm going to eat. And if I kind of, it's very easy to pre-plan. And if you do, you end up choosing better foods. So we pre-plan the meals. I make the time. And, and I won't kid you, it's busy. You know, I'll work all day and get noticed at, you know, four o'clock that we're going to serve a warrant and I'll take off my scrubs and I'll put on my vest and my tax stuff and go out and do the warrant. And, um, but I enjoy it, you know, and uh, it's, it's not work. It's fun. It's like I said, it's, as you've been doing this for years, it's, it's who you are. It's part of, it's part of what you do. And, um, it's, it's hard to define for a lot of people to understand it. You know, why do you want to do that? Wouldn't you rather go do this and do that? And my response is no, I love these guys, you know, the guys that I work with, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's the, that, that kind of relationship and camaraderie doesn't exist on the outside. You know, it's, it's very valuable for those of us who've served in the military or work on police departments, that, uh, friendship and bonds that occurred, that doesn't happen. Most people don't get that. Right. And, um, so I'm very fortunate. Like I said, that I'm able to participate in in both worlds.
0: That's awesome. I I have one last question. If you have time, I'm absolutely, um, I talk a lot about the importance of having a team and, and uh, you're just talking about how, you know, law enforcement is a team and that's a, an environment, but I, I guess in this, I mean, in the sense of team of people who, Are there to either uh, support you or play a role in your health Mm -hmm. or your fitness or your growth as a as an individual or as a leader? Often say that you know you're the you're the average of the five people closest to you. That kind of concept. So I talk about how I'm you know building my team and how some of those people are on my team and one of those people one of those or there's coaches on that team too. Do you have who would you who would you say you know (laughs) given given your position or given your perspective, what kind of people do do cops need to have on their team? And do you have any coaches?
1: Ooh, that's a really good question. That's a deep question. So, um, you know, I think, um, let's, let me answer that in two parts. In terms of what people, the cops need on their team, I mean, first off, there's a tremendous amount of peer support that's there, but it's necessary. And that also manifests in our humor because we joke about the most morbid things because if you can't joke about it, it's really hard to deal with. And and you know exactly what I'm talking about with having to go into it, but we see horrible things and, you know, they end up making jokes because otherwise if you don't, it's almost, we see the worst of the worst. And if you don't find humor in it, it's not, that humor is a tremendous coping mechanism. So my my advice in that regard is, um, you know, people who are for, if you ask me how I would say a young officer coming out looking to kind of enter this field, who should they follow and mentor, even unofficially, are the people who are not bitter, the people who've gone through this. You know you know them as well as I do, people who are punching the clock, ready to get out. They sense the department screwed them over. They're going to do the little amount as they possibly can. That's probably the people to avoid. But there's good quality people who've developed very good coping skills, um, support skills, and those are the people that I use Uh, I would recommend and that that can be from the, you know, from the chief's office all the way down to the senior police officer who's on the street for 25 years. Um, For myself personally, it's interesting. You know, my, um, I really never thought about it that way, but my, um, my, both of my parents are are deceased, but they were huge influences in in my life. My family acts that way. And I have um, been fortunate enough to have very good friends both in the physician sector and in the police sector who have um, set examples for me to follow so I um, I wish I, I don't have one person in particular but I like to look at a group of people that help me become where I am
0: I think it uh, I can't believe I'm about to quote Oprah right What it takes a village <laughs> 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 my wife is obviously influencing yeah, you on sure that. Uh, dr. John Sheinberg, uh Dward certified cardiologist uh, Cedar Park Police Department uh, special uh, special agent with the US marshals or uh, uh,
1: a test, special deputy, U.S. special, US special test deputy.
0: Officer. Uh, That's a lot of titles for one guy. Thanks for being with us uh, on the show. Uh, PublicSafetyHeart.org is your organization. Um, Twitter, Instagram, you ever there? Are you just too busy running and kicking in don't, doors and have, opening hearts? That,
1: that's on the list of things, but uh, no, we do not have a Facebook, a Twitter, or an Instagram as of yet.
0: <laughs> well, maybe we can uh, connect up and I'll, uh, I'll help you create the accounts and all that for, okay. uh, for the future. Uh, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. If you like what you heard today and you got something out of this conversation, please consider leaving a review on the podcast player of your choice. Second, share this episode or any other episode you loved with people you know who need to hear it. You can share episodes right from our webpage at thesquadroom.net and and from most podcast players. If you heard something today you know a friend or loved one needs to hear, please tell them about the show, Uh, and you can email this episode even directly to them. If you want to know how you can support the show, there's a few ways to do that. If you head over to thesquadroom.net, forward slash support, you will see a few ways that you can help the show and save a few bucks. These are all what's known as affiliate links. So for any purchase you make there, the podcast receives some compensation. It's important to know that it doesn't change the price for you. The first biggest and easiest way to support the show is when you do your Amazon shopping. Before you head to Amazon to purchase anything, please go to the squadron.net forward slash Amazon. Just click the Amazon button on that page and carry on with your shopping. Amazon will see that you can do them through our site, and it really helps support the show. There are also deals on there like 10% off Onnit supplements by going to onit.com forward slash squadroom, Ranger Up clothing, and Hardhead Veterans Ballistic Helmets. If you want to try out an audio book, you can get a free month subscription to Audible and a free audio book of your choice by going to audibletrial.com forward slash the squadroom. Again, that easy place to find all of these is at the forward slash support. Lastly, I want to thank our sponsors again, ProForce. So check them out at ProForceOnline.com. And until next time, take care of each other and stay safe.